Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. The places where God finds you become holy ground. We were 40 miles from home. We had driven all over western Montana and Wyoming in our green 1957 Chevy station wagon on a family vacation that took us through Glacier National Park and Yellowstone. It was a late July evening. Traffic was heavy on US Highway 99 as we drove the last leg home after stopping for burgers and milkshakes at a drive-in along the highway. The back window of our car was plastered with decals from every place we had been. We had long since tired of playing the alphabet game with billboards. My souvenirs covered the front seat between my mom and my dad where I usually sat. I was on my knees, on the floor between them, my back to the hard metal dashboard of our station wagon. There were no seat belts in those days. My mom let out a mournful cry. Oh, honey, look out. There was the sound of screeching tires, a crash, and a sickening crunch when the back of my head hit the dashboard. All went black. When I came to, blood was everywhere, most of it from my own nose and mouth. The car horn was stuck. Dust was everywhere. We stumbled out of the car and someone threw a blanket on the hard gravel along the highway and gently placed me onto it. People stopped and offered us help. A doctor and his wife were in the car behind us. They ran over. The woman cradled my head in her lap and gently washed the blood from my face and my mouth and my ears with a damp cloth. The doctor pushed my broken nose back in place. Apparently hitting the dashboard wasn't enough. A suitcase flew up from the back of the car and hit me in the face, breaking my nose. He broke a pencil in half and made a splint for my nose, covering it with surgical tape. They stayed until the ambulance came. My dad rode out the crash, holding tightly to the steering wheel. He held it so tightly that he bent it into an oval. He and my mom and my brother and sister were bruised and scratched, but otherwise they were all right. I lay at the side of the road, for all appearances, dead. A car had pulled out from a fruit stand on the right. We T-boned them at 50 miles an hour. Our car was totaled. I was totaled, my head thrown like a melon against the dashboard. My dad thought I was dead. There were sirens everywhere lots of police cars and ambulances. I was carefully placed on a stretcher and put into the ambulance. 
I'll never forget the swaying of the ambulance and the muffled sound of the siren wailing as we drove to Providence Hospital in Everett. My mom sat at my side and held my hand. Tears ran down her cheeks. In the emergency room, x-rays revealed I had fractured my skull when I hit the dashboard. The injury was serious, maybe deadly. There was the prospect of long-term brain damage, they told my parents. My brain had bounced around inside my head like a racquetball. I was in the hospital for a week. I was cared for by nuns. Nuns. I had never seen a nun close up before. I had only seen them through the fence when we drove past the Immaculate Conception School in Mount Vernon. Now they were gently touching my cheeks, inspecting my bandaged head, taking my temperature, speaking quietly to me as my mother sat in a chair across the room, putting on a brave face. I was too numb to be scared. Doctors and nurses spoke to my mom and dad in hushed tones in the hallway. A week later, I went home, limping. And once a month for a year, my parents drove me to Everett from Mount Vernon for a brain scan. The doctor joked with me and tapped my knees with a rubber hammer. There was, he told my parents, no permanent damage. But the damage done to my psyche was lasting. For months, just getting into a car filled me with existential terror. I was eight years old and I knew I could die. The memory of that crash was etched on my psyche. Even now when I close my eyes, I can remember everything. I'm back in that car. I can hear the locked screeching tires and the crash. I can taste the blood and the dust. I can feel it in my guts. I still shudder. Many trips to Seattle in the years following took us past that place. I always looked the other way when we drove past. I was fearful it might happen again. And then Interstate 5 replaced Highway 99 as the preferred route to Seattle. No stoplights, no fruit stands, and the memory of that place faded. Fifty years later, I was driving alone north on Highway 99 from our home in Edmonds. We had moved back to Washington from the Chicago area. I was on an errand. I wasn't even thinking about where I was. I drove past an old mobile gas station preserved as it had looked in the 1950s. Then the memories came flooding back. I realized where I was. I approached the crest of a hill, driving past old motels and car dealerships, and then descended toward what is now known as the Payne Field interchange, and I looked for the Yakima fruit stand on the right. Mercifully, it was gone. 
but as I drove over the very stretch of highway where I almost lost my life, and I looked at the gravel shoulder where they placed me on a blanket, suddenly the pure grace of my life itself hit me. I might have died there, but I didn't. All the painful memory, all the existential terror was, for the moment, replaced with the realization that, like Harry Potter, I was the boy who lived. There on that stretch of highway, I survived. By the grace of God and the mercy of good people and by the crapshoot of physics, I survived. I didn't pull off the road that day, didn't want to cause another accident. But if I had, I would have picked up a rock and held it in my hand or made a mark in the gravel to mark the moment, to mark my survival, to mark my very existence against the odds 50 years before. It was like waking up from a horrible dream that had long held me hostage. Here I was, in that place, I was alive. The realization hit me that God had been there all along. God was with me through that horrible accident 50 years before, and God has been with me in all the years since, through good times and bad. God was in that place. God is still in that place. And what had been a place of painful memory became a place of sacred memory. With Jacob, I could say that day, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. The psalmist reminds us there is no place that God isn't. God is relentless. God comes looking for us. God blindsides us with grace and mercy. God blindsided Jacob. Jacob was, among other things, Frederick Buechner says, a crook. Twice he cheated his lame brain brother Esau out of what was coming to him. He took advantage of his blind old father and played him for a sucker. He conned his father-in-law out of most of his livestock and later on sneaked off with not only the man's daughters, but just about everything else that wasn't nailed down, including his household gods. Jacob, Buechner says, was never satisfied. On the run, looking behind him, checking his back trail, Jacob finally stops for the night and he sets up camp. He has no pillow, so he grabs a big rock, tucks it under his head, and falls fast asleep. And he dreams of a ladder to heaven. This is a dream, not something real. But in Genesis, dreams have a central place. They reveal what is hidden. We shall see more of this in the story of Joseph. It is not the dream itself, but what is understood or extrapolated through the dream that matters. The interpretation of the dream, in other words, 
is more important than the dream itself. In the ancient world, giant stair-stepped ziggurats were built for people to climb up and peek at the gods and for gods to climb down and visit the people. The story of the Tower of Babel is an example of such a stairway that went bad. In this story, Jacob has a ziggurat dream. Angels are climbing up and down the ladder. Given Jacob's habit of taking what does not belong to him, you would expect him to climb the stairs, grab a blessing, and run. Instead, God climbs down the stairs. God shows up and gives Jacob what he doesn't deserve. The Lord stands beside Jacob in his dream. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you sleep, I will give you and to those who come after you. Your children and their descendants will be like the dust of the earth. They will be everywhere. And because of them, the whole earth will be blessed. Jacob is on the run and God catches up with him in a dream. God doesn't give Jacob hell, Frederick Buechner says. Instead, God gives Jacob heaven. God blindsides him with an unexpected grace. The lesson, Buechner writes, was needless to say that even for a dyed-in-the-wool, double-barreled con artist like Jacob, there are a few things in this world you can't get but can only be given. Buechner goes on. God doesn't bless people because of who they are, but because of who God is. God blesses Jacob not because he deserves it, but because he doesn't. And Jacob, waking up from his dream, wakes up from the delusion that his life and his blessing are his for the taking and the keeping to do whatever he wants to do with them. He wakes up to the realization that his life doesn't belong to him, that it never belonged to him, that it belonged and still belongs to God alone to do with as God decides. Jacob realizes from his dream that his life is not a con, but a blessing, not something to be grasped but something he can have only when he lets go of it, when he accepts it as a gift. Jesus was always getting into trouble with the people with sharp elbows, those who gamed the system and pushed and shoved to get what they wanted, believing God's blessing is something they were entitled to. As I wrote recently, Christians must decide whether to play take up your cross or capture the flag. Capture the flag is adrenaline driven. You climb to the top on the bodies of the vanquished. You throw elbows. You humiliate your enemies. Taking up the cross of Christ is different. 
It is a radical act of freedom, mercy, and love. You lift others up instead of tearing them down. You help people instead of hurting them. You climb down instead of pushing and shoving your way to the top. You lose your life and you find it. So Paul tells us to have the same mind as Christ, who, though he was equal with God, did not consider this something to cling to, to grab, to take, to keep, but instead climbed down the stairs from heaven and emptied himself. Want to be first, he asked, be last. Jesus worked his way down the ladder of success. That's what the cross is all about. John Lewis understood this. He and those who were beaten at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma were not there to take something. That is what those who beat them thought. They weren't there to take something. They weren't taking what didn't belong to them. They already had it. They had already been given the blessing. They were living out of and acting out of the blessing already given them by God, a blessing no one can take from you. John Lewis climbed down the ladder to the top with Jesus. Jacob wakes up from his dream, wipes the sleep from his eyes and shakes his head. He comes to himself sees things the way they are for the first time. Surely the Lord is in this place, he says, and I did not know it. He takes the rock he has made for a pillow and he turns it on its side. This was a big rock. He builds a cairn, a marker, and pours fragrant oil on it, transforms it so that it will be unforgettable a reminder that this is the place where he was blindsided by God, where God caught up with him and truly blessed him in spite of himself. There it was that Jacob learned you cannot demand, you cannot extort a blessing from God. You can only receive it, accept it, and live the rest of your life with gratitude. Jacob calls that place Beth-El, the house of God. Surely the Lord is in this unlikely place, this place of desperation, this unexpected place, and I did not know it. God was here all the time. Then in verse 20, which we did not read, Jacob makes a vow. If God will be with me and keep me in this way, or maybe better read, because God is with me and has kept me in his way in spite of me, not because of me, and I come again to my father's house, this place I have marked will always be sacred. A reminder that the Lord was here, that the Lord is here, and everything lost and broken through my own stupidity and selfishness has been recovered and redeemed. God finds us where we are in places we do not expect. 
sometimes in places we did not want to be, and in the finding redeems us and blesses us and delivers us in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. That's grace. So the psalmist declares, O God, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. You know who I am. You know what I am, warts and all, and you still come looking for me. You hem me in. I cannot escape you. Your love and your mercy are, in the end, inescapable, inexhaustible, and irresistible, and I can't figure you out. Then he asks, where can I flee from your presence? If I climb the stairs to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. There is no place, no experience, no event, no tragedy, no loss, no exile, O oh God, where you cannot be found or where you will not come looking for us. You are inescapable. And even though I don't deserve your love, you keep showing up. When you have been found and found out, and there is no escaping it, all you can say is, search me, O oh God, and know my heart peel away my layers of denial and my scheming self-sufficiency and lead me in the way everlasting. And I will remember the place where it happened, where you found me. And I will take the hard rock that was my pillow and I will take even my suffering and I will turn it on its side and anoint it with oil and mark that place as holy ground, as a sacred place when I remember what happened there. I will give you thanks for your faithfulness and your mercy, saying, surely God is in this place and I did not know it. Where has God come looking for you? Where has God found you in these difficult days, these days of pandemic isolation, these days of fear and frustration and uncertainty? Maybe God has found you in the midst of loss and grief. Maybe you have lost a job or lost a marriage. Maybe it is in the midst of the tumultuous upheaval in our country where God comes looking for you and finds you. Maybe it is in the midst of racial injustice and violence that God shows up, knocks us sideways and we finally come to ourselves and wake up from the nightmare we have made of things. Maybe God will find you in a place of vulnerability with a rock for a pillow. Or maybe, like C.S. Lewis, you will be surprised by joy, 
by the remarkable realization that you are and that you might not have been but for the grace of God. And the place of that realization becomes a holy place, a place of laughter and a place of tears. Our pandemic life has been made a sacred place with the birth of Lola and Honor and Rhea and soon another precious child to Ryan and Sarah. Surely the Lord is in this place. Wherever you find yourself, let God find you there. That is the place of your deliverance. That is the place where hope comes out of nowhere. That is the place where God looks for you. Mark the spot. Remember it. Consecrate it. And remember that the hard pillow of your suffering will become a lasting reminder of the grace and mercy and presence of God. Amen.